0: please take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Luke 6. Luke 6, as we will pick up this morning, just where I left off. Eight weeks ago before my sabbatical, I want to thank you all again for the gift of that time. And uh, just, just about a month ago was my 15th anniversary as your pastor. It was a joyous milestone to reach and just through my time away and writing and studying and resting just realized how much i love my calling to this body how much i care so deeply for each of you and what a privilege i have to serve and to shepherd this body in christ and i am so grateful for you all i did want to recommend as i got started this morning most of my reading over the course of my sabbatical had to do more with the book i was writing but a couple things i found just excellent for personal growth and for family. One was Rejoicing in Christ by Christopher Reeves. This is an excellent book that'll just draw your heart nearer to Christ as it leads you to contemplate His majesties and the wonderful of all that He's done. And so I would encourage you in that, Rejoicing in Christ. It's not cumbersome. It's an excellent read. And then this is one we've been doing with the family called The King's Night. It's a parable along the lines of what Pilgrim's Progress uh, was. Uh, there, there are a few minor theological tweaks I would make to it if it were mine, but uh, it's an excellent work. And uh, if you have young ones in the home, you know, may, maybe a little older than six, seven, because it does, you know, talk about some, some battles and those kind of things. Uh, but it, it really is an excellent work, and uh, we've really enjoyed that as a family, and that's called the King's Night. So I would encourage you to those. As we come to Luke chapter 6 this morning... We're returning to our exposition of the Gospel of Luke right in the middle of what scholars refer to as his Sermon on the Plain. In Matthew, we had the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is obviously here in a different location. Some of the things he said are very similar to what is contained back in Matthew 5, and some of it is very unique. And so uh, Jesus has, has just finished pronouncing what is blessed in his kingdom followed by warnings of woe. And so we're going to pick up at verse 27 this morning as he explains how his children should bear out his love and how we treat others. And so look there with me at Luke 6, verse 27, and follow along as I read. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Father God, we are humbled and grateful children who gather together this day in the name of Your Son, Jesus, our Lord. Father, as we come, we are thirsty. We are hungry for spiritual drink, Lord, for spiritual food. We live in in a world, Lord, that in spiritual terms is a desert. And so we come here, Father God, glad to be amongst Your people. Glad, Lord, to know the sense of Your presence among us in the gathering. Glad to receive from Your table that which will nourish us. And so, Father, prepare our minds and hearts this moment to feast on Christ. To drink, Lord, from the fountain of His delights, the fountain of living water. To feast upon the truth, God, that changes us, that prepares us for your presence, that reminds us of where our hope is in all things. Speak now, Father, and give your children ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Obviously, as we look at this passage, we know that the main subject that we are discussing this morning is the subject of love. And that remains, rightly so, a favorite subject in the church, and in a wider sense, a favorite subject in the world, even in our culture. We know that that movies are about love, that there are books about love, that there are songs about love. And yet, when we look at where our culture actually is, it seems more and more that we are becoming a culture where our stock and trade is in hate. Our culture is devolving to so many degrees. Our culture has devolved to the point that an Ivy League university professor can brag publicly of how she dreams about killing people of a certain ethnicity. Public officials of one political persuasion can openly and vibrantly declare that they wish their counterparts in the opposing party were dead. For some people or groups, your loyalty to their particular ideology is proven by how vigorous you are at hating anyone and everyone who disagrees with you. Indeed, the morality of the world says, love your friends and hate your enemies. But that really shouldn't surprise us as believers, should it? I mean, we only need to look at Scripture to see the same thing all the way back in Genesis with Cain and his descendants We see that Jesus encountered the same thing in Israel when he came to redeem us. And the fact of the matter is that throughout human history, hate is prevalent because sin dominates us. Sin dominates the human race. And in the ethics of modern worldliness, what we know today, hating people has become a virtue. But that's not true for Jesus, is it, brothers and sisters? That is not true for Jesus sin is what he hates and he teaches us here that those who belong to him practice a very counter cultural ethic of love and just so we don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought the implications of what he teaches here go far deeper than having love for our enemies here we get down to the foundation of how and in what way we love at and so we're going to explore this text in just two points this morning. And my first point is this. We're going to consider first the sacrificial response of love. The sacrificial response of love. We know from the parallel passages in, other gospel, in the other Gospels that Jewish rabbis at the time of Christ taught people, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Which is nothing different than what the sinful world believes. As the Lord of love, Christ gives us an altogether different instruction as we come to these verses. He emphatically and authoritatively says to us, Love your enemies. And that word for love, we know this, we've seen this before, is the term agape. That, that word agape denotes a, a love that is in many ways self sacrificing, a love that puts the good of others before oneself. One author has rightly defined it as as the positive expression of sacrificial affection in which we desire the supreme joy of the beloved. And we're not just to love those who are our friends, love those that we are comfortable loving. Jesus tells us here, again emphatically, authoritatively, to love our enemies. And who is an enemy? Anyone and everyone all the way up through those who hate your guts. That's an enemy. And that is our calling. We're to love them. And the rest of verse 27 and all of verse 28 tell us how. We love our enemies by doing good to those who hate us. By blessing them even when they curse us. And by praying even for those who would abuse us. And we're to love this way because... That is what God does for us isn't it Romans 5 8 says but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us but love is more than something that God does it is who he is as pastor Scott took us to the the book of first John we saw there in what he read in 1 John four fifteen and 16, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. What this means, brothers and sisters, is that true biblical love, divine love, can never be fully understood or realized apart from confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. In Him, we come to know what love is. God is love. He is not just the creator of love. He is not just the source of love. He is not just someone who teaches us about love. He himself is love. His divine essence and being is love. And this truth flows from the reality of who he is as a triune God. God is a trinity. Before the first word of creation was ever spoken, God existed in the joyful perfection of his triune being. I, I was once at a, at a youth conference many years ago with a well-known speaker up in front of me and, and, and I shuddered in that moment as he was giving a devotion kind of in the midst of a concert type setting and he shuddered, I shuddered as he said from this platform to thousands of people that were gathered in this convention center, you know, God created us because he was lonely. That's an absolute lie. God in the trinity of his being has never been lonely. God in the whole of his person is love. There is a perfect love that has flowed between Father, Son, and Spirit for all of eternity that will flow forevermore completely apart from creation. God is love. And we see this spoken of so rightly by Jesus as he comes in in, in the ministry of truth among us. We see through him that there was a perfect bond and expression of love between he and the Father. In John 3 and in John 5, we see Jesus talking of the love that the Father has for him. In John 8 and in numerous other places, he tells us of how the Father glorifies him as he glorifies his Father. And in John 17, 26, he summarized his mission in coming into the world. Jesus said, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. There it is, brothers and sisters, right there. That's what we know and receive through Jesus Christ, our Lord. By virtue of our union with Christ, we are redeemed into the love of the Godhead. That is what undergirds that understanding of the word agape that I gave you earlier. It it is a sacrificial affection which desires the supreme joy of the beloved. That is God's love. The overflowing expression of sacrificial affection that desires the supreme joy of the beloved. And what is supreme joy? God himself. God himself is the supreme joy. God loved us so much that he gives us himself, for he himself is the most supreme joy imaginable. Again, to quote another author, John Piper, said this well. He said, the love of God is not God's making much of us, but God's saving us from self-centeredness so that we can enjoy making much of him forever. And our love to others is not our making much of them, but helping them to find satisfaction in making much of God. So true love aims at satisfying people in the glory of God. Any love that terminates on man is eventually destructive. It does not lead people to the only lasting joy, which is namely God. Love must be God-centered, or it is not true love. It leaves people without their final hope of joy. Brothers and sisters, I hope you see the wonder of this, the wonder of this divine love that is poured out on us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is what God had for us, and that is what we are to have for our fellow man. When God calls us to love others, he's not calling us to muster up mere human affection for men. He is calling us to be conduits of his love for them. He is calling us to manifest a sacrificial affection which desires the supreme joy and glory of the Godhead for our fellow image bearers. This is why love is one of the central traits of Christianity. As Paul said in Galatians 5, beginning verse 13, "...for you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh." But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's how we're to love. As we go on in our text, verses 29 and 30, Jesus there gives us some practical examples of how love is demonstrated to people. Verse 29a there, he says, To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Again, in Jewish society, to be slapped or struck in the face was one of the highest forms of insult or contempt. Striking someone elsewhere would do harm to their body, but striking someone in the face was an assault to a person's dignity and honor. It was counting them as unworthy of respect and treating them like a dog. Our natural reaction, think about that, how would you feel if someone slapped you in the face? Our natural reaction to that kind of derogatory blow would be to lash back at the person. We would probably attempt to slap them back or, or, or to punch them or maybe even to knock them down. But Jesus says we're to do just the opposite. He says when we're slapped on the cheek, turn and offer the other cheek as well. Jesus does not want us to fight to protect our own dignity. He wants us to surrender our dignity to God's hands and trust that he will defend and protect us. To not be vengeful in our response, but to lay down our lives as Christ did. Look at verse 29, the second half there. And for one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Most, most common Jews owned a couple of long tunics or shirts that they wore as their main garment. And then they all had one outer cloak that kept them warm and served as their blanket at night. The Mosaic law mandated that a man's coat or cloak could not be kept from him overnight because he needed it for a covering. So it was often a person's most valuable garment and it would be terrible indeed for someone to take it from you. But Jesus says here, that if someone takes your cloak, go ahead and give him your shirt, your tunic as well. And you know what? This is the origin of the expression, you know, that guy would give you the shirt off his back. We've used that expression before, right? To denote someone who's, who's very servant-hearted and generous and who would help anyone in, in need. That's where that expression comes from. Jesus says, give him the shirt off your back. In doing so, we are holding others in higher regard than ourselves. And it is once again a visible manifestation of how the believer depends upon God to keep him safe and secure and well, even when your last means, your last physical measure of security and comfort has been relinquished. Verse 30, Jesus says, Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. It is part of our sinful human nature to be selfish and possessive. When you work hard for property and wealth, it's not wrong to want to protect those things and be good stewards of those things. However, in the desires of our flesh, we can quickly go beyond good stewardship to material idolatry. God tells us that money is a tool or means provided to us by Him so that we can use it for His glory. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we should hold money responsibly, but loosely. We have the right to use our money and resources in godly freedom, but Christ wants us to lay that right down before him as well. If someone has a genuine need and begs for help, we should not turn away. And if someone takes our stuff, we should not demand it back. When we take all three of these examples together, we see that we are to hold our dignity, our security, and our property with loose hands. Having such a heart of faith and generosity culminates in the golden rule. Jesus says there in verse 31, As you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. Have you ever wondered why this is called the golden rule? Well, it's because, according to legend, Roman, the Roman emperor Alexander Severus He ruled in the early 200s A.D. He he reputedly had it written in gold lettering on the wall inside his throne chamber. Similar statements to what Jesus says here have appeared in many other ancient sources. The writings of Rabbi Hillel, the apocryphal book of Tobit, the writings of Confucius, the Stoics and even Buddhism. However, all those other sources state it negatively. They state, do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you. If you think about it, that rule is just a rule of non-hatred. Jesus states this in the positive sense as a law of love. This law of love is a kingdom ethic that should guide us in every relationship. I mean, consider the two greatest commandments. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we're to love our neighbor as These, this, This golden rule practically defines how we love our neighbor. The golden rule aptly summarizes the commandments 6 through 10. If you are treating people the way you want to be treated, then you will honor your parents. You won't steal from others. You won't lie to them, kill them, commit adultery with them, or covet what is theirs. This is what God has called us to embody as his people. And we are reminded here that true love, biblical love, always responds with that kind of sacrificial heart. Romans 13, 8-10 says, O nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Brothers and sisters, every one of us can probably look at a time in our lives when we have been or experienced love like that from someone and you know precisely how much that love meant to you, how it grew you, how it shaped you. Whether it was a parent or a grandparent or a child or spouse, or someone who just showed you an incredible kindness in a moment of your trial and suffering. That love, that expression of love, is burned in your memory, and rightly so. It is that kind of love that we as the children of God are called to bear out to our neighbor and even to our enemy in the name of our King. That takes me to my second point, the rewarding standard of love. The rewarding standard of love. When we pick up with verse 32, Jesus then turns to reason from the negative. First, He asks, What reward is there in loving those who love you? All people do this, even sinners. The religious leaders who who were very selective in who they loved were really no better than the sinners they looked down on. Both groups did the same thing. They loved only those who loved them. The same was true for those who did good, only to others who were good to them. You know, there's nothing amazing about that. Sinners even do good to those who do good to them. And third, Jesus says you may be generous enough to lend someone money, but you do expect to get paid back, right? How is that any different than the world? Even sinners lend money expecting to be paid back. His point here is that none of these expressions of love is unusual. And certainly none of these expressions of love is remotely supernatural. This is how sinful people act all the time. And the Jews, as they listened to Jesus say this, they would have been especially hard hit by this because they were a very racist people who pridefully looked down on every other ethnicity, calling them pagans and Gentile sinners. And yet here was Jesus Christ in their midst telling them that their expressions of love were no different than the people that they detested. You see, the Jews had domesticated the law of God to fit their sinful desires. They reduced and adjusted God's standard to create the appearance of holiness, but inwardly they were still selfish. They were no better than pagans and unbelievers themselves in so selfishly showing love. So Jesus told them, verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. As His children, we are to live a kingdom life that manifests kingdom priorities in order to show forth the magnificent heart of our King. This is the kind of life that is rewarded. And what is God's reward, brothers and sisters? What is God's reward? Look at verse 35. You will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Our reward is being His sons. We will enjoy knowing Him as Abba, Father, and being like Him. We will have the joy, as Paul said in Ephesians 5, of being imitators of God as beloved children, walking in love just as Christ also loved you. Our God is a merciful God. He gives these basic blessings of sustenance to all men, whether they deserve it or not. In accordance with His divine love, He shows common grace to all men. He supports the existence of the good and the wicked. He gives a measure of protection to both the good and the wicked. He provides sustenance for both the good and the wicked. He sovereignly cares for all men because we are His special creations made in His image. Thus, every single human being on the face of the earth receives some measure of His heavenly benevolence. And as his beloved, redeemed children, we demonstrate we are his when we love like he loves. That's the basis for all of this. Why should we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute and abuse us? Why should we turn the other cheek and give away the shirt on our back and hand our stuff over to those in need? Why should we love our enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return? Why First and foremost, because that is exactly what Jesus did, brothers and sisters. The very thing He is commanding us to do here, He Himself has done for us. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Think about how Jesus sacrificed his dignity, his security, his property, even his life to demonstrate God's perfect love. He let people refer to him as the son of the devil. He surrendered all his earthly possessions. He became a servant to the needs of men. Though he could have called down a legion of angels to stop them, he let men beat him and mock him and spit upon him and torture him and strip him naked and shame him by hanging him naked on a cross before the masses. The Bible says, give up your cloak the soldiers who crucified Jesus gambled for His cloak at the foot of the cross. Jesus surrendered every vestige of His personal property, His personal security, and His dignity in order to complete His Father's will, in order to redeem us. And so, brothers and sisters, at the cross is where we learn to love our enemies. Because even on the cross, even as Jesus hung there, Dying a torturous death, he prayed, Father, forgive them. The cross is where we learn to love our enemies. Jesus has led the way in personal sacrifice, and it is his very strength and grace that enables us to love. And so when we live as if we are nothing and he is everything, what we are doing is demonstrating the infinite worth of our Savior. We are opening up a window that allows even those who oppress us to see the height and breadth and depth of the love of Christ. We are truly being witnesses of His glory and showing them that everything in this life is but rubbish and dung compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what Paul said in Philippians 3. Everything else is lost. Compared to knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. We live this way because Christ lived this way for us. But secondly, brothers and sisters, we live this way because God is everywhere and he holds everything in his hand. Nothing escapes God's notice. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his knowing it and ordaining it. You don't have to worry about fighting for what is yours because it's not yours. It's God's. And you don't have to worry about fighting for your personal rights and protecting your personal dignity because God will fight for you and protect you if you will just surrender to Him any claim that you have on yourself. Romans 12 reminds us that we are not to be overcome by evil but to overcome evil with good. Love and leave vengeance to God. In Christ, God has set us free from the tyranny of self. He has loosed us from all earthly concerns so that we are free to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. As we follow Jesus, as we walk in the footsteps that he has led the way in for us, brothers and sisters, it is then that we are prepared to love others supernaturally, which means loving them with a capacity and with an intensity and with a generosity that flows from Christ himself. I know that I've been the recipient of this time and time again in my life. I've shared with y'all the story before and so for those of you that heard it before I just remind you but you know when when I was called to ministry when I realized I wasn't meant for a career in the Air Force and and I initiated breach of contract proceedings so I could get out of that contract to follow a call into ministry my father who was an un- my stepfather who was an unbeliever who was retired from the Air Force who whose heart was wrapped up in me following in his footsteps he threw me out of the house and everything I couldn't carry out with me, he burned. I had nowhere to go. And the deacon and his wife, the deacon that had discipled me when I was a brand new believer in Christ, they were the first to say, Sean, come and live with us. Stay with us, live here, finish college. We will take care of you. We will love you. We will be your family as you follow God's call on life." It was an amazing love. And I know I've received that over and over again in my life. Brothers and sisters, that kind of love where we open our hearts, our homes, all ourselves, not just to the one among us who's in need, but even to our enemies. That supernatural love is what reflects the person and work of Jesus Christ to the world. So, how are you at loving? How are you at loving? How are you at loving Christ, Christian? Are you struggling right now? Do you find yourself in a dry season, perhaps where apathy has taken over? You find it hard to even get motivated to read God's Word, let, let alone pray. You, you know, you know from 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 your from your your, being, your time in the faith, you know that 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 you are apart from Christ, but you 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 really walking in that place where you've lost your first love. I want you to know that Christ has not ceased to love you. And that even when your love has grown lukewarm and cold, He has drawn ever near to you. He will never leave you nor forsake you if you are truly His. It doesn't matter how far you've gone away. It only takes one step. That one step of repentance to be right back in the center of the love of Christ. Jesus has given everything to purchase you for himself you will never be despised or forsaken love him again pray to him and ask him to rekindle that love of your heart there are some of you in 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 your married life right now that are that are struggling to love you you're treating your spouse more like an enemy than you are a Christian you're not communicating you're quick to be angry You're living very selfishly, you're living for what you want, not considering the other. Not understanding what agape love is and how true love, biblical love, is laying down your life for one another. Maybe you think you're right. You're right. And your your spouse, your husband, your wife just needs to understand that you're right and they're wrong. That's one of the most unloving places you can be, brother and sister. Jesus could have stood over us all day long telling us that he was right and we are wrong and he would have been perfectly just in saying so. But he laid down his life. He sacrificed himself to love. Love your spouse biblically. Lay down your need to be right. Right or lay down your right to to protect yourself from emotional hurt i'm I'm not saying you should ever subject yourself to abuse But what i am saying is never pull back when christ commands you to push in in love maybe it's in your parenting Maybe we have some young people who even here today, you're struggling to submit to your parents. You're struggling to show love to them by respecting their authority and heeding and obeying what they say. You constantly push back because you're at a place in your life where you know better. The book of Proverbs calls that being wise in your own eyes. I challenge you to lay down what you think is right. To yield to the authorities that God has placed over you to know and receive the love of your mother and father as they are trying to show love for you through the way they guide and direct you. Respect and appreciate that and submit to that and know what it is to love them by submitting yourself to them. Brothers and sisters, I could go on and on in this. Maybe it's a, a co-worker that you feel has done you wrong or has been promoted before you to a position that you deserved. Maybe it's a church friend that you feel has somehow slighted you or not responded to you in a way that they should and has caused you to pull back. Maybe you have a neighbor that at one time you had a flourishing relationship with and something just went wrong. Something went sour. Maybe because your child fought with their child or something wrong happened. Listen, it's not about being right. It's about being Christ-like. Christ is always right. His love is always sure and never failing. And we show the world, we show our neighborhood, we show our church, we show our community, we show our family the power of Christ when we love like He loves. To walk without this love is to choose a path of misery and to inflict misery on others. Walk in the light of all that Christ is for you and through you, brothers and sisters. Christ has brought you to this path. It is nothing you have to muster up in yourselves. But walk it for the glory of His name. John 13, 34-35, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Are you a disciple? Love like.